Welcome to the Prometheus Strength Podcast. This is your host, Zach Powell. In today's episode, I discuss the idea of bad habits, recovery trackers and their utility, I have a hot take on the heels cue, and then I leave off with the question of volume for progress, the trap of progressive overload. The first topic I want to discuss today is the idea of bad habits in someone's technique. At very high levels, you know, a lot of athletes have uh, idiosyncrasies or, or variations in their own technique, and a lot of times um, people attribute them to the idea of bad habits or, or over time they practiced the wrong thing and it didn't allow, um, or the, 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 the coach or the athlete didn't spend enough time correcting those bad habits. Um, so I do, I do not like this idea. Um, for a couple reasons, um, but I, but I think there is some merit, and so we'll, we'll, I'll go back and forth with that. So the first reason I don't like it is because sometimes you have to let an athlete do something poorly if there's something else that has way more importance in their lift. Um, so, for the for example, uh, the the athlete is swinging their hips into the bar, um, but they're not finishing also the coach or the athlete has to decide which of those two things might be a little more important. Um, so you're not trying to tackle everything all at once. So let's just say that the athlete decides that it's more important to, you know, stay over the bar, the hips aren't swinging into it. Um, but their extension just isn't there just yet. Um, and so, you know, it's okay to let the second thing occur while you're trying to fix the the thing of priority um because if you're trying to think about everything during a lift you have less energy to give to a lift especially something like the snatch clean and jerk that happens so quickly or we want it to happen so quickly um i I just don't think that going into a lift with a ton of ideas in one one's head is, is a good idea for for many reasons um mainly because thinking during a lift just slows it down already but you know we have to be aware of our body but not trying to think about it too much Um, especially in the beginning stages of one's career where there are literally a thousand things that somebody needs to learn in the snatch clean and jerk that if you overwhelm the athlete I actually have experienced this myself and, and experienced it with people that I coach, um, that if you if you overload them too much, if you try to give them perfect technique with every rep, there's just nowhere to go from there because you can't think through every stage of the lift. So, you know, I, I know a lot of developmental models take the lift, break it down, um, and, and just focus on one part of the technique. And, and that's what I, what, what I like to use much more when I'm teaching the lifts. Let the other things that are, are less important be be bad. We'll come back to them. That's what we'll tackle later. Um, because when we can improve the big rocks, the little rocks become easier. Rather than trying to take everything on all at once, um, that can get frustrating for the athlete, the coach. Um, it, it actually could make an athlete do worse with every, every lift because they feel like they're not improving at all um and i just think that the 
like this sport is, you know, people talk about this all the time that it's a constant growth. So we will never reach true perfection. And that means that there's always something lagging in our technique. And that's okay. We're not enforcing bad habits. The other thing is, um, you know, a, a 2017 study by uh, Milanese et al. Uh, I believe that's how you pronounce it. Um, using a, a very novel strategy of rather than correcting one's technique, you actually amplify the mistake. Um, and, and I like this idea um, as long as the athlete's safe um, and, and they understand why they are amplifying the mistake. So let's just say somebody isn't uh, sweeping the bar into them. So, you know, the idea would be if they can't sweep the bar into them, what we're going to do is do one rep where they are doing a no contact snatch. Like they're, they're, they're not even no contact. They're, they're leaving it out in front and purpose. They're trying to push it out. And uh, in my experience with uh, people who are recreational or, or beginners, this actually works really well because when you do that, it is so far out from in front of you that you want to overcorrect it and actually pull it in to keep your center of gravity. And the other thing, even if it doesn't work in that rep, you can then explain, do you feel how that's so far out in front of you? Absolutely. So we want to correct that. Um, it, it gives it gives the person a better understanding of the feeling of why that little bit wasn't working. Okay, now we, we're going to amplify it. I'm going to show you okay, this is an exaggerated version of what you're doing. We want to go in the opposite direction because language is just so limited in, in feeling or in, in describing feelings. Um, you know, being patient to one coach is different than being patient to another coach in the lift or like when describing being patient in the lift. Um, it, it, it can vary wildly from athlete to athlete on what they're experiencing in the lift. So I think that it's uh, it, it's good to to remember that like one where we're constantly trying to improve our technique to the, the idea of bad habit. Sometimes amplifying the bad habit can actually correct the bad habit. And I, I, I also think that there's some type of there's some types of idiosyncrasies that some lifters just need. Um, you know, somebody has really long arms, maybe the arm bend is important for them to lift properly. Uh, and, and that just comes down to, to the coach and athlete relationship of, of what do they think the, the athlete needs to do to correct their lifts. Um, and then lastly, um, I think that harping too much on bad habits can frustrate an athlete too much rather than seeing improvement they're always feeling like they're regressing um but to give to give nuance and caveats there i do think that you know obviously there there is a progression um you know people do get very um set in their their technique so with that being said i don't think that let me back up. So athletes or coaches typically say that, um, you know, it takes longer to unlearn bad habits than it does to, to 
train new ones. And I, I think that's wrong. It's just that as an athlete becomes more developed, they become less patient in learning their technique because what was working for them for so long is, is hard to unlearn. Um, you know, if you have somebody who can snatch 150 kilos and they're just so explosive that, you know, it doesn't matter if their arms bend a little bit. Now you're trying to get them to unbend their arms because you think that eventually they will be able to snatch 155 or 160. Why would they take this step back to, you know, now their one rep max, max is only 130 and when before they were doing 150. So a lot of times, uh, especially in American weightlifting, we want instant progress. It's hard to take that step back initially to fix what, you know, may benefit in the long term. Uh, and especially at higher levels or, or the longer somebody's lifting, it may become more difficult to, to correct those things. So it's not so much the, the quote unquote, you know, neural, neuromuscular pathways. Um, it might be more psychological base of somebody being rewarded for, um, things that may not be helping them in the long term, but, um, and, and we might call those bad habits. And, and I, I think that's a, an appropriate use of the term so um there is you know there are times where we want to correct bad habits or um you know that that idea of bad habits but i don't think it's just uh, as clear as like you know ingraining technique or ingraining bad habits and you know the athlete screwed forever that's my biggest beef with it is that it, it people think that it's you know Oh, as soon as you have this bad habit, it's never fixable. Um, you know, as long as the athlete and coach understands that this is a journey, we're constantly trying to improve our technique, then I don't see anything wrong with, you know, some idiosyncrasies or, or variations from quote unquote perfect technique and just understanding that we can always improve. All right. So second topic today would be on the topic of recovery trackers. So I won't name any specifically, but right now there's a lot of um, CrossFit and um, recreational athletes who are um, promoting uh, this armband that that has, um, you know, recovery technology. And, um, you know, I see it a ton. I, I wear a Garmin myself um, just because I like the watch. I don't really use it for much more other than like steps throughout the day um uh but but the the data that comes from these recovery trackers i i I put into question even if it is accurate which i don't know much about the accuracy i've I've heard that it they aren't very accurate but the reason i don't know that they are entirely useful is because even if it was accurate so let's take the the sleep data so, you know, you, you slept for, you laid down for eight hours, maybe of those eight, you got six good hours. If you woke up in the morning and you felt great, you were like, man, I had an awesome night of sleep, but you look on your watch and it said only six of your eight hours were good. Therefore you only slept six hours and you have it in your head that you need to be sleeping eight to nine that might cause a nocebo effect or the idea that, you know, I, I'm not doing as well as I'm supposed to. So then 
do you sleep more? You know, do you improve your sleep hygiene? What if before you didn't really like you were sleeping fine, you felt great. Now you put this this tracker on and all of a sudden it causes more stress in your life because you want to be micromanaging this these data points. One, the accuracy is, you know, questionable, but two, like even if it is accurate, the stress may cause you to sleep more poorly. You might might have anxiety around sleeping. And and I have I have had experience with the idea of I'm not doing everything I can to recover. And that probably made my recovery worse. I, I felt like I wasn't doing enough outside of the gym. And that caused me stress. Um, you know, if I didn't go to bed at a certain time, I would be I'd be so frustrated. And I think that probably made that night of sleep worse simply because I was just frustrated that I wasn't going to bed at a planned time. Um, and I, I do think that you can get very, very, um, like too loose. You can get too loose about, about recovery strategies. And absolutely, you want to make sure that you are getting enough sleep. But a lot of times it, it causes more stress than it's worth, right? Sleep is absolutely important and we should be be all over it getting enough but if the act of tracking your sleep causes you to sleep less or the quality of your sleep to be poorer like then it doesn't make sense to keep tracking it it's not worth what you're trying to keep up with um, similar to, to step counts if, if if all you're doing is keeping activity high um, but but it's causing more stress in your life, you know, we want to make sure that things are are fitting into place. So so what I what I I like to think about this or how I like to think about this is okay, if if you were told that your sleep was poor now, what would you do to change it? Or or what are what are the outcomes that you're looking for? We don't sleep for the sake of sleep, we sleep for the sake of improving our life. If your life doesn't need improving, then you don't need to change your your sleep or, or the the outcomes that sleep can improve. Um, you know, heart rate variability. There's limitations to that, especially in the readings of heart rate of um, variability. So there are things that yes, we want to make sure that that we're managing symptoms. We want to make sure that we're managing the the our, our, our recovery. But I do think that the the idea of recover recovery trackers might be premature in, in their utility at this moment. Um, because if, if what if you are that person that can get away with six hours of sleep and be just fine, going for eight may not be better. Um, so and if, if going back, if you are sleeping poorly already, you know, there, there is like, there's no way a, a recovery tracker is going to benefit you in any way because you, you are already sleeping poorly. What's going to help your sleep is going to be doing practices to help you sleep better, not the, not the thing on your wrist. It's going to be, you know, things like dimming light or making sure that you're, you're in bed at a certain time things that are already free, the less sexy things, the things that you can't, you know, write home about. Um, 
So there might be there might be instances where they are useful, um, but I, I think that a lot of people put a lot of trust in them, um, and and there's already things that you can do, or 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 there's ways you can look at the things that you're trying to measure without getting caught up in in the numbers or whether or not that they're accurate. So recovery trackers, I, I'm not really bought into just yet. So today I, I want to kind of get into a hot take. Um, it, it's something that I, it just really, really has gotten me for a long time. And I've made multiple posts about this. Um, everybody that's trained around me probably knows that I, I can't stand it. But it's the idea of uh, the heels cue. So before I, I uh, tackle it too much, I kind of want to give it some, some credibility to where it came from, why why it's even around. So one, the heels cue, what is it? So uh, you go to any weightlifting meet, you're gonna hear some coach yelling heels to their athlete uh, at some point in the lift. So the idea it comes from keeping your heels on the ground. So a lot of times beginners may not have the, um, the ankle mobility or they, they don't have the practice to make sure that the their center of gravity isn't too far forward. So they, they lean forward onto the balls of their feet, their heels come off the ground prematurely. Um, and you know, the idea is that if I yell heels loud enough, um, it'll remind them to keep their heels on the ground. The reason I can't stand it is because it's often not explained properly. So you don't want the weight on your heels. Like, it's just not a good place to be. You can't get any, not any, but you can't get a lot of explosion from from being, on, like, putting your weight on your heels. Um, you know, it's often used more in the jerk than the snatch and clean, but, but it's still prevalent. And, um, you know, a lot of times, I, I just, one, that, that cue is just such a blanket cue, and I don't think it's even worth using all that often. Um... So two, I don't know that it's 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 used in the most appropriate times either. So if somebody's whole foot is on the ground, I think you've mastered that idea. Um, where it's used most is in the jerk. And so the idea is that you don't want your weight shifting forward in the jerk. You want to keep your whole foot on the ground because if you shift your weight forward in the jerk, the bar will then go forward and you'll miss the lift, which is absolutely the case. But if you keep the weight on your heels during the jerk, you're also going to have your weight too far back. And especially as the weights get heavier, the farther back you lean, the more you're going to compensate with the lift. We can't, we have to bend at the knees and the hips no matter what. So the more upright you go down, which you want to be upright, but if you lean back as you get as you stay upright, what you do is you're gonna like your weight still drifts forward, and so there's no correction. Rather than letting your hips drift slightly back, like when I say slight, it's even it it probably wouldn't even be perceptible outside of um, you know an experienced weightlifter's eye. But you don't want to just put the weight on your heels because then you have to rock back onto your toes through the explosion rather than just keeping a balanced foot the entire time and then finishing the lift. So 
I just don't like the queue, but I do think that it's probably useful in some case. You know, somebody that listens to this is going to be like, well, I have an athlete that it really worked for. And I think that it's definitely useful, but use it cautiously. Like it's, it's used way more than I think it should be. Um, I heard about it before I even knew what it was, what it was trying to describe. So if you use it with an athlete, just be, just be like aware of what you're trying to, to describe to them because it's not always obvious. Like that goes for the knees out cue, all of that. Like they're so, they're used so much more than I think that they're, they're worth. Um, and yes, I do think that some athletes going to benefit from it. So before anybody takes my head off about that, I do think somebody's going to benefit from it, just not as many people that use it. And today's episode, I want to try something that I didn't in the last episode, and that's present a question, something that I think very deeply about, um, but I don't know the answer. So I'm going to talk through the question, what what I think about it. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just a question. I don't know where, you know, whether it's research or, or, um, anecdote where it's going to lead me. Um, but I would love to hear, you know, the audience feedback of, of what you think about this question. So, um, the idea is volume for progress. Um, and, and how I framed it is the trap of progressive overload. So, you know, in hypertrophy training, higher volumes tend to lead to greater outcomes in, you know, muscle size, lean body mass. And strength training, uh, higher intensities are seen with, with higher levels of strength. But it's kind of that chicken of the chicken and the egg problem. So just because somebody is lifting with higher intensities or, or heavier weights in this case, does that mean that they are stronger because they were lifting with those heavier intensities? Or is it because, or are they, are those weights able to be moved during training because they were stronger? You know, um, I, I don't think that, that we need to be progressing, you know, training stressors as frequently as, as, one I once thought, but I, I, th- I think a lot of training programs go. So, you know, the first week you go in, you, you do a, uh, hang snatch plus snatch, uh, and you go to maximum effort next week. You are, you know, let's say you did 90 kilos for that. And, and next week, you know, your sights are already set on a hundred kilos because I need to, to improve my one rep max snatch. I need to do you know, a hundred kilos, I need to use progressive overload. But what if 90 was already stimulating enough? What, what, can 90 be stimulating for four weeks, five weeks, you know, months are arbitrary units. Um, And I'm not trying to hide behind that. What if the athlete can improve with the same weight for six weeks? What if they are just a hyper responder to all training stimulus? What is the benefit of going higher if, if the return on investment is diminishing? Um, I, I don't know that it's 
and I've fallen in this trap where each week I need to be PRing. I need to, you know, lift heavier than last week because otherwise I'm not progressing. But, you know, even volume, why, why do we need to go four, five, six sets, you know, and then deload? Um, what if those four sets are stimulating enough for that training session or that week of training? I think that, you know, it's it's obviously easier to, to make sure that we're increasing the the, the volume or the intensities. Um, and over one's career, we definitely want to make sure that what we were doing before actually increases too. Um, but, but which is the result? Is it, oh, I got stronger now in my training, I can use heavier weights? Or is it I used heavier weights and now I'm stronger. And, and the latter is the conventional way of thinking. Okay, well, if I want to get stronger, I have to use heavier weights. But with emerging, emerging research, research showing that, you know, people aren't getting as close to failure, they're getting similar strength gains from um, lower RPEs or, you know, rate of perceived exertions. I, I'm thinking it's the former, you know, the idea that you don't have to you don't have to always be progressing the weights. Strength gain, strength gains are a lagging measure, sure, um, but I also think training, training weights are a result of somebody getting stronger rather than the 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 vice versa of that idea. Of. And so, you know, that's where I think the the research is probably pointing to. Um, I don't, I don't know that um, there's much to support one or the other, you know, in debt, like, for sure with, you know, certainty. But, you know, I, I think that there's also practical implications of training with the idea that heavier weights are a result of strength, simply because then you can pick better, better weights. Um, you can manage fatigue during training much better and you're not always trying to best yourself session to session um, because that may lead to negative outcomes or negative psychological outcomes. Um, you know, you let the PRs come when they're ready rather than forcing things or, or stopping volume shy because, because the weight that you attempted on your first set is too heavy for sets two, three, four. Um, you know, I just think that the, the, there's more going for the idea that training weights will increase as a result of strength and not the other way around. So that's the end of today's, today's episode. I want to make sure that, you know, you guys feel comfortable, you know, reaching out to me. Um, you can find me at Zach.Powell on Instagram. That's the best way to find me. And, uh, please give me some feedback and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on, uh, today's, today's episode.